You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everybody, before we get started, I wanted to remind you that this Wednesday at 7 o'clock Eastern Time, I'm having a webinar on how to get a Broadway theater, the secrets of getting a Broadway theater, all the history, what the theater owners look for, and then some. Tune in this Wednesday, 7 o'clock. Check out the blog for more info. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week. One article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. Ken Davenport here. You're listening to the Producers Perspective podcast and a very special podcast today because we are turning the microphone around and asking questions to someone who usually asks the questions I'm very thankful he has agreed to join us and also thankful there's no breaking news today so the New York Times could let him out of his little box. Please welcome to the podcast the New York Times reporter in charge of the theater beat, Mr. Michael Paulson. Welcome, Michael. Hello. So for those of you who don't know Michael's history or didn't see the movie Spotlight, uh, where his name was thrown around all the time in there, it was awesome. Uh, Before Michael started covering Broadway, he covered religion and was actually part of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize for covering the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church for the Boston Globe. So before we talk about how you went from religion to Broadway, let's actually go back even further. How did you get started as a reporter? Where did this journalism thing start for you? I think it started with Mrs. O'Brien in seventh grade. Uh, I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is just outside Boston, and I went to a junior high school that was uh, had all these electives, had a notion that kids that age would be better off if they had some voice in what they were thinking about, and I took a newspaper class and kind of loved it. Uh, I loved... Uh, getting to ask people questions, getting to share their stories, constantly learning. And I stayed with newspapers from then on. I was the features editor of my high school newspaper, and then I was the editor of my college newspaper, and I've worked in daily newspapers my entire career. Lots of Red Sox articles being a mass (laughs) native, I'm sure. 86 World Series you cover. Exactly. Uh, I was never a sports reporter, always either politics or religion, but I did. I've worked all over the place. I started at a suburban newspaper outside of Boston and then worked in South Texas for a while and in Seattle and in Washington, D.C., and then back in Boston and now here in New York. So you're working at the Globe. You're literally shaking the foundation of the Catholic Church with your work there. And then all of a sudden you're like, ah, I think I'll go right for Broadway. So why the, how did right, that transition happen? Right. So it wasn't quite that direct, but um, I covered religion for a long time at the Globe and uh, then became an editor there. And in 2011, uh, an editor at the Times called and asked if I would come edit here. And so I came here as an editor uh, overseeing coverage of local politics, New York City Hall and and New York State Government in Albany. And so I oversaw a group of reporters in those two places through the race for mayor in New York in 2013. And then I went back to writing 
uh, first covering religion nationally for the Times, and then I've been on the theater beat for about 14 months now. How's that going for you? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> um, it's fun. It's fun. I just finished my second Tonys, and uh, I'm catching my breath, and there's lots to reflect on, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it's it's been a hoot. So what I've always been amazed about reporters is how they do... I mean, your story is not that unique, and reporters do jump from beat to beat. But Campbell Robertson, who was the first New York Times reporter I know, went off to Iraq, like he emailed me one day, and Patrick Healy now writing uh, on the campaign. Yeah. Um, how do you... Did, were you a theater fan before? How did you make this transition? Do you have yeah. to immerse yourself in the... Do you read a lot of books? Like, how do you go from beat to beat like this? So I think you're right that uh, newspapers think of journalists as expert on journalism and think of beats as learnable, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, you know, our science reporters mostly have a greater academic background in the disciplines they cover. But other than that, I would say most people uh, move around. And one of the really appealing things about the New York Times is because it's a large organization that covers a lot of different things, there's a lot of opportunity for variety over the course of a career. I think the fact that I covered religion sort of freaks people out because it seems, especially to New Yorkers, sort of exotic and weird. Um, I don't think that would be universally true across the country, but um, but it is here. And so I get a lot of jokes about how religion and theater are or are not similar. Uh, but I was certainly a heavy theater goer my whole life and uh, was seeing a lot of theater here and uh, the culture department knew that. So when my predecessor, Patrick Healy, moved on to the presidential campaign, they came and asked if I would think about it. There is, the, the Times is an unusual organization. It has uh, separation between critics and news reporters in the arts world. So we have critics who write about theater and art museums and classical music and popular music and television and film and so on. And in each of those disciplines is also a news reporter. And most of those reporters, we cover the industries, we cover the, uh, the artists, and most of those reporters, like me, come out of a traditional news background. The critics mostly have more of a quasi-academic relationship to the, to the disciplines they cover, and the reporters uh, are mostly just steeped in how to write a news story. So you get tossed into our strange little ecosystem here. What was the first thing you noticed that shocked you the most that was like all right i didn't expect this i mean i think one thing that really has been uh startling and sort of pleasant and sort of odd is that at a time when the importance of newspapers and the culture broadly uh, has declined significantly the importance of the New York Times to the theater industry uh, appears to be incredibly high. And, you know, it was startling to suddenly step into a world where people still cared so intensely about what my newspaper was doing. I was covering, just before this, I was writing mostly about evangelicalism and writing mostly about evangelicals uh, outside of this region. Uh, elsewhere in the United States. And that's a world in which the New York Times is um, 
is an alien presence. Most of the people I was covering do not read my newspaper, think of my newspaper as sort of hostile to the worlds that they live in and believe in. And to go from there to a world in which every office I enter has a print copy of the paper hanging around, people know who the editors are, know what the deadlines are. They're very, it's a, it's a world that's very connected to and believes in, in, uh, newspapers generally and the New York Times in particular and that was startling because it hadn't felt that way for a while on other subjects. Did you find that the press agents or that the general industry was welcoming to you? Did you find them very tight-lipped at first? You know there were press agents calling me before it was announced that I was taking this job. Uh, press agents are paid to get attention for the shows that they are promoting from lots of outlets, but mine, uh, you know, is a significant target for their uh, entreaties. So I would say uh, generally they've been very welcoming. Uh, you know, there were a lot of people who very quickly wanted to say hello, wanted to tell me about what they're working on, wanted to talk about uh their the shows that they have coming up, their relationships with the times, their relationships with the industry. I would say it was quite a generous welcome. So all these people talking about their shows, and I can't even imagine how many press releases you get every single day in your inbox. What what makes something jump out at you and go, oh, I I want to write about this. This is something that needs to be in this paper of record. Yeah. It's an excellent question and one that I think we're grappling with and reconsidering all the time as our audience changes and the way they read us changes. And also, as like you, we have more and more hard data about who they are and what they do and don't consume. Um, but I would say that as a general practice, we have a de facto commitment to writing about every Broadway show. Usually that means some kind of feature story that tells our readers that here's what's coming and here's something that's interesting about it. Somebody involved in the creation or the performance uh, that you might find interesting that might help you think about whether this is something you would want to think about seeing. Uh, and we review all Broadway shows. When it gets beyond Broadway, it becomes uh, much more discretionary. And there, uh, the Times is making judgments all the time about, is there something going on that makes this project uh, worth the attention of our readers who have these incredibly busy lives? And is it worth their attention either because they might see it, or, of course, most of our readers don't live in New York, uh, is it worth their attention because they're interested in the arts and want to know what is happening in the field of theater or want to know that there is an artist who is emerging who is worthy of uh, their knowing about there is some kind of trend in the issues that writers are grappling with or the way uh, works are being staged so you know we're constantly trying to figure out like what is of interest to people and what is important to people with the theory that the reason people come to us is that they're looking to us to sort of 
uh, help them sift through this huge volume of stuff that's going on in the world. And in our case, this huge volume of theater that's being made. And those people who come to us look to us in part to say, hey, you ought to know about this. And that's the judgment that we're paid to make. You mentioned, you know, in today's age, knowing what the readers consume. So it just made me think of, you know, me and my, my blog. Like I know, oh, look, I got more readers on that entry than... Do you get that data for your own, for your articles? Yes, that's uh, relatively new. I would say it arrived in newsrooms a couple of years ago, but at the Times, the Times was a very uh, slow to give reporters access to that information because I think there's a real concern about uh, what its value is and, you know, its potentially uh, corrosive nature. Uh, because it can be quite disheartening in a way. But yes, I have access now to software on my computer where every story I write, I can see how many people read it and I can see how they got there. Did they come from Facebook or from Twitter or because it was placed on the New York Times' homepage? So there's quite a bit of data and, uh, you know, you very quickly see what kinds of stories perform better than others uh, and you learn other information, you know, uh, depending on what time of day or what day of the week something is published, it might do better. There's a kind of randomness to this as well. But uh, yeah, we have a lot of data now. And the next struggle is to figure out what to do with it. Uh, and, you know, I think for the times broadly, like, what do we know? What do we do if we know that you know, coverage of, um, you know, Donald Trump and terrorist attacks gets enormous readership and coverage of, say, physics or West Africa or classical music gets much less. Do we then stop covering things that fewer people read? I don't think that we want to do that because we view ourselves as a news organization that is committed to broad coverage of the world. But but that information seeps into your head. And of course, in my little world, it means I know that whenever I write about Hamilton, the traffic is very high. And whenever I write about an off-off-Broadway show, the traffic is much lower. And again, we remain committed to broad coverage of theater. But now we have information that we didn't used to have. And I think we're still sorting out what that means. It's fascinating. I've never actually thought about it until this very moment that you might have a all this data available to you, which, yeah, I imagine as someone who started reporting several years ago, when you didn't have this information, it would seep in and maybe change the way you write, yeah. whether you like it or not. It's not just the information that has changed. I mean, it's true. When I started, everything went into a print paper and people got the package on their doorstep and you could naively believe that they were reading your little story about the meeting of the Conservation Commission in some small town on the South Shore of Massachusetts because there it was in front of them. And who knows how many were actually reading it. Uh, but not only do we now have all this data, but of course people are getting us differently. A majority of people are not getting us in print, but they're getting us on some kind of digital device, which until five seconds ago was a computer, but now increasingly is some kind of mobile device, usually a phone. Uh, and they don't read in the same way. They don't read the same volume of stuff. 
They don't find us in the same way. Increasingly, they find us not by coming to the New York Times, but because somebody on Facebook or Twitter said, hey, look at this story that I saw in the New York Times. So other people are curating us for their friends instead of us curating us for you. Uh, and, you know, they're reading on the go. Uh, they're juggling us with uh, Candy Crush and with, you know, whatever else. Like our competition is no longer other media, but is other forms of entertainment and other forms of just passing the time on the subway or wherever. So the world has become a lot more complicated and we're still constantly trying to figure out how that shapes how we tell the news. And how do you, what do you think about social media and all this? I mean, you're very active on Twitter yourself, tweeting out your stories and in reactions to other people's stories as well. Yeah. Has that been an enjoyable thing for you? Something that's been hard to start? You know, I think it's a mixed blessing. Uh, on the one hand, it's exciting. You can kind of feel people engaging with stories much more um, instantly and intensely. And uh, it's great that you can watch stories be uh, shared in the world by people who share your interests. On the other hand, of course, um, it's... Uh, it can be brutal uh, when you watch some things that you care about be essentially ignored. And also there's a kind of, uh, there can be an ugliness to some of the conversation that takes place in social media uh, that, you know, is unpleasant to be exposed to. And, you know, that's part of the world too. So since you've been on the beat now 14 months, What's the favorite story you've written in the last 14 months? The favorite topic besides Hamilton? I mean, I guess it could be Hamilton. But what's the thing that stands out as like, this was a really cool thing? Right. I mean, look, one of the great things about this job is that I've always gotten to meet a lot of interesting and important people who were smart in various ways, but... I haven't met a lot of artists, people in the creative fields, and they have a kind of kooky intelligence that is different from what I've been exposed to previously. And it's really uh, fantastic for someone who is not creatively skilled to be exposed to that. I've really enjoyed getting to spend time uh, with theater makers, both performers and writers. And uh, so very early on, uh, Fun Home was on its way to Broadway when I started, and I went up to Vermont uh, to visit uh, Alison Bechdel at her home uh, outside of Burlington because she's the cartoonist whose graphic uh, memoir was the basis for Fun Home. And, uh, you know, she's just like a fantastically interesting and unusual person. And Fun Home was this fantastically interesting and unusual project that uses three actresses of different ages to play this one person at different stages of her life in this kind of Russian doll structure that unpeels the layers of this person's life. And uh, it was just cool. And it reminded me that like, oh, I'm stepping into something that's a little zanier and a little uh, more uh, fun than what I uh, had been doing before. Uh, you know, on a more serious note, if I can like veered slightly toward Hamilton land. I collaborated with a business reporter a couple weeks ago on a piece trying to look at uh, how Hamilton makes its money and where that money goes. And that felt like a worthy expedition for us. Obviously, Hamilton is a huge hit. Tickets are very expensive. It's generating a lot of money. And it felt like a 
something valuable for the Times to do would be to try to take a hard look at how does a show like that make money and who benefits. And uh, I was proud of that. That was a fascinating article. We'll include a link to that uh, in the blog about this podcast. Uh, and I, I sent that to all my investors and anyone ever expressing interest in investing just so they could see how that all broke down. I did find it very interesting that that article was written and published. And then the prices for Hamilton went up after the article was released. Uh, if you were sitting around at, at some reporter bar, I assume there's got to be some some place, uh, watering hole for all the reporters, and there was someone from uh, the automobile beat and someone from the science beat, and they were like, hey, what's that Broadway beat like? How would you describe the theater industry to people that didn't know anything about it? Right. It's a really good question. I think, as I said before, the relationship between my newspaper and the industry really changes what it's like to cover this beat. It means that I have a lot more access than a lot of beat reporters. Generally, people, with some exceptions, are eager to have me around, willing to let me watch whatever I want to watch and talk to whoever I want to talk to. Uh, and that's an incredible privilege. It also comes with... Um, I would say a very high degree of uh, sensitivity, uh, thin-skinnedness, and a kind of uh, expectation that uh, we will pay attention to everything that's going on. You know, people are rapidly, you know, disappointed or angered when we don't do everything that they wish we would do and that they think that their worthy projects deserve. So it's both a plus and a minus, the kind of the close relationship between the times and the industry. Uh, it's also, you know, the geographic nature, especially of Broadway, is is incredibly helpful to me. My last job, I was on a plane for almost every story. Now I'm like, I can leave my cubicle and be anywhere I need to be in five minutes. Uh, and, you know, I find theater artists kind of... Uh, excellent subjects for journalists. I think I've spent a little bit of time thinking about this. I think that the world of theater, of course, it's a world of storytelling and journalists want to hear stories. And it's also a world, and I'm thinking particularly about actors here, that kind of rewards uh, uh, sharing about things that have gone wrong in your life or your career. There's no shame in talking about uh, disappointments, failures, mistakes, uh, as well as victories and accomplishments. And as a result, when you talk to theater actors in particular, there's an openness that's just so valuable to journalists. And it really contrasts, I think, with, with the experience of people covering Hollywood, where... Uh, I think the stakes for actors there are higher because they're more famous and anything they say can be kind of seized upon by social media and either mocked or criticized. And uh, they're also handled in an intense way that is just different from theater actors. So uh, that's another benefit to this beat is just people are open and they have good stories to tell and uh, they want to talk by and large. This is a business also that has lots of politics. We're all, I sometimes refer to it like one giant Thanksgiving dinner that we all love each other, but uh, we're a little dysfunctional at the same time. And God knows who's saying what about what in the other room. Do you get a lot of off the record conversations 
is there more than other people? Is everyone like, look, I, I want to talk to you about this, but you can't quote me because I have to deal with this agent tomorrow. I have to deal with this producer tomorrow, this theater owner. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the other thing that I didn't mention that's distinctive about this beat is that the industry is small. Uh, it's a small group of people, most of whom know one another. Many of them have worked together and competed against one another, sometimes at the very same time. And they're all working in a pretty small area of midtown Manhattan. And uh, it's fascinating. And yes, lots of people want to talk off the record for all kinds of reasons. That's not that's true on every beat, but it is amazing how much everybody is at the same shows, at the same parties, sort of friends with one another, and also, you know, quietly quite critical of one another. I mean, particularly in your world, I think in the producing world, there's a lot of, um, you know, chumminess, but also I can't believe how much that guy screwed up that production. What's the most shocking thing you've ever heard anyone say to you off the record? <laughs> right. I'm not going there. Damn it. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of, of that kind of off the record or, or not getting a lot of people to talk about some things, is there any story that you are like is on your list to write? I got to write the story, but yet you haven't been able to find enough on the record or actual evidence of a story that you know is there. Anything you're looking <laughs> to right. expose? It's a good question. I mean, there are various kinds of stories we've talked about doing that we just haven't found exactly the right situation for. I mean, we've talked about writing about the preview process and um, what actually happens during previews because lots of my colleagues go and are kind of intrigued by all those people who are in the back with the computers and the notebooks. But and, you know, we talked about it this past season. It just didn't work out for various reasons. But I think we have this fantasy that it will be sort of cinematic and that if you're there at previews all the time, you would actually see somebody get fired and some character get knocked out of the show and songs be replaced and, you know, huge change. And, you know, some publicists sort of warned me like, oh, you know, what you would really see is a director saying, could you enter like 30 seconds earlier or stand a few feet off to the right? And, you know, the changes by the time something is in previews in Broadway are slightly more modest for a lot of shows, especially because the majority of shows that come here have been worked on somewhere else. Um, and, you know, I think we can get a better uh, grip on the economics of the industry in various ways. That Hamilton story was a stab at, uh, one element of it, but I think it's important for us to uh, engage with uh, how this industry works and doesn't work financially. And obviously that's something I'm going to learn more about as I spend more time on the beat. What's the biggest mistake that you think producers make when it comes to the press? Well, look, I think some producers understand that uh, news organizations and and theatrical productions have different roles to play on planet Earth and are kind of at, at peace with the idea that I'm going to ask questions that they wish I didn't ask and they're going to decide whether to answer them and that the stories that I write are the stories that we think are most important and valuable to our readers and not necessarily uh, the same exact thing that they put in their news releases. And I think some producers mistake us for an arm of their publicity operation, which is, uh, you know, it's just not the way the world works. And uh, that's a challenge for some relationships. Do you believe that all press is good press? 
That's a good question. Certainly Um, wasn't good press for the church in your prior prior gig, but here... Right. I mean, look, there's a larger question of whether is all press good press and is any press good press? I mean, I don't think we fully know... Uh, how people decide whether to buy tickets to a show and what the relationship between news coverage and ticket buying is. And I think it varies uh, depending on whether a show is on Broadway or off-Broadway and depending on whether it's a musical or a play and depending on whether it has a movie star or not. But, uh, you know, I think, no, there is some press that is damaging, right? There's unquestionably some press that can be damaging to some shows. You are a theater fan. You've been a theater fan for a while, but now you're writing editorial. Do you find yourself having to catch yourself when you're like, oh, God, I really, really want to say what I feel about the show, but that's Ben and Charles's job. I can't do that here. And and you ever slip in? Yeah, I really often wonder what the line is because most of my colleagues in the media who are not at the Times... Uh, write both news stories and criticism that most organizations can't afford to have multiple people covering theater and there's no boundary and social media has made that boundary very blurry too because I think social media invites a kind of casual rapid fire conversational tone and you know often I will tweet that I'm going to see some show I always tweet what I'm seeing before I see it so I won't be tempted to offer an opinion but understandably, on either Twitter or Facebook, people then asked me what I thought. And the Times' rules are that I should not weigh in, that I should leave criticism to the critics. So I try to stay out of it. But, you know, sometimes I see a performance and I'm just like blown away and I want people to know. And I'm still wrestling with how to deal with my own enthusiasms, which mostly I try to keep in check and just share with friends. Where do you think reporting will be 20 years from now? One, will you still be doing it or will you move on to another beat? And where do you think it'll be? We're talking at a time when the news media is in enormous transition. Just over the course of my short career, the changes in the way people consume news have been enormous and incredibly devastating to the financial model of news coverage in the United States. So, you know, we've seen lots of newspapers disappear. Uh, We've seen every newspaper cutting back in various ways. We've seen all forms of competition that we could have never imagined. And this kind of um, total transformation of the way people on planet Earth get information now. And the New York Times is as healthy as any news organization in this country, but is still uh, struggling to figure out where it's going to be, never mind 20 years, but in two years. Like, how do we understand what is the future of print? And uh, how do we, how does the fact that so many people now read us on cell phones affect the lengths of stories or what the expectations are for visual elements to them? or how much they have to play to the kind of uh, grabby packaging that drives so much of conversation online. And, you know, what's going to happen to my career? I have no idea. I think I will continue to go back and forth between editing and writing, both of which I've done. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that the New York Times is going to remain an essential part of the kind of news ecosystem in the United States and in the world because the Times is increasingly expanding globally. Uh, but I'm not 100% confident of that. Uh, you know, there have been changes during your lifetime and my lifetime technologically and information-wise that we could never have imagined. And so I think we have to acknowledge that there may be more changes coming that we can't imagine. So we're sort of along for the ride. It's funny. I just The, the theater and journalism are very similar in the way that they're evolving and a few years behind all the other industries. And I think yeah. both will experience great changes. I think that's right. I also think there are other similarities. When I look at the Broadway League does a kind of annual survey of who goes to shows. And when I look at the demographic challenges of Broadway, they're very similar to the demographic challenges of the New York Times and other kind of legacy news organizations, which is to say an audience that skews much older than the general population, uh, more affluent, more white. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think that the theater world and the New York Times uh, interact so much is because we have similar audiences, but it also means we have similar challenges because, of course, for both theater and the Times to survive, we have to reach younger people. We have to reach more diverse audiences in all kinds of ways of defining diversity. Okay, my last question, which you know what it is because you've listened to a couple of these podcasts. It's my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to your office at the New York Times and thanks you for jumping on the beat and doing such a great job of covering it in only 14 months and says to you, Michael, I want to thank you for this by granting you one wish. You're such a nice guy. What's the one thing that makes you so angry, frustrated, mad as a theater goer or a theater reporter that you would want this genie to change about Broadway in the snap of a finger? I mean, first of all, the New York Times is across the street from Aladdin, so it'd be a really short trip. And despite our kind of elite image, I have to say that if the genie walked into the newsroom, it's an open newsroom, uh, he or she would be thronged with uh, autograph and selfie seekers. Um, but I think that uh, if the genie like had any connections to Silicon Valley, I would ask that someone invent a technological way to prevent cell phones from ringing in shows. I go to see everything on Broadway and a lot off Broadway. I am almost never at a show where a cell phone does not ring, no matter how many warnings. It doesn't matter if Sarah Bareilles sings it to you, which she does during Waitress. It doesn't matter how humorous it is, how serious the show, a cell phone rings. And it feels to me like changing behavior, like we've lost that battle and the only solution is technological. I really, I'm so glad you brought up the Waitress uh the waitress cell phone message because it's one of the best I've actually it's ever so heard. It's so endearing, yes. And Sarah's so endearing and it just makes perfect sense. And the night I was there, it went off to, how can someone not at least check? I don't understand it. Like even I, and I'm pretty good with my phone, was, oh, well, let me just double check just to be sure. Are people not hearing this stuff? Or is it only the people that are octogenarians that don't know how to turn it off even if they wanted to? Right. I think that happens sometimes, but I, I think lots of young people just think they're exempt, forget, push the wrong button, don't check it at intermission. Uh, and, you know, we're in an era when we have our phones with us when we sleep. We have them with us all the time and people struggle to disconnect. 
Well, we'll see what we can do. Getting one of those silicone. Get the genie on it, okay? To build a wall around the theater that prevents uh, cell phone access. Uh, I want to thank you for allowing us to spin the microphone around here and for your dedicated and passionate coverage of our industry. All of us have enjoyed it. Um, that's my review and actually the industry's review. We love reading your stuff. Uh, for those of you interested in Michael's life prior to Broadway, he's the co-author of Betrayal, The Crisis in the Catholic Church, which you can get on Amazon. We'll throw a link to that in the description uh, of this podcast, uh, which is the book that inspired Spotlight and, and got Michael that big Pulitzer. Uh, and also follow him on Twitter. Thanks all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Ken Davenport. This is the Producer's Perspective Podcast. Tell a friend. Don't forget this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, the secrets of getting a Broadway theater, all the ins and outs, the strategies, the fun stuff, the stuff that people don't talk about. This Wednesday, 7 o'clock, check out the blog for more info. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.